Father, thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people around your words. You say, this is your son, listen to him. And our prayer this morning is that we would do just that and hear the word of Jesus. Open our ears, encourage our hearts, because we ask it for Jesus' namesake. Amen. Well, we're going to start this morning with a picture. I've got it up for you both on live stream and here at the front. And the question is, what can you see? Do you see a beautiful young lady or do you see an old lady? It's all about whether you see the nose and the chin. That's the old lady. But is it a beautiful lady in a shawl and a fur, a scarf and hat? Or is it an elderly lady? This is an optical illusion. It's a brain teaser. It's actual torture if you can't quite see the other one. Half the congregation, I'm sure, can see the young lady. The other half can only just see the elderly. A brain teaser. It's torture, an optical illusion, a trick. And if you look down to verse 12 of what Jim just read to us, you'll see that the question this morning is one of vision. Because when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, there will be some who see but don't perceive, or who hear but do not understand. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark has shown us that Jesus, God's long-awaited king, has burst onto the stage of human history and proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at last here. In chapter 1, we saw the electrifying moment of drama as Jesus is baptized and the Spirit descends on him, Isaiah 61, as he's crowned or messiahed. It's the day of Jubilee, the kingdom of God is here. At last, a return to Eden, conquest of the enemy, restoration of the Sabbath, deliverance from evil. But do you see the kingdom of God? And this eye test is not just a test this morning for you if you're here as a visitor, perhaps not yet a Christian, but you're very warmly welcome here. This is a question of ongoing vision. For those of us, perhaps, who have been Christian for 20 or 30 years, I'm finding personally that my vision is getting worse as I go on. I might need to have some glasses or a new prescription, but it's possible in the Christian life that we lose our sense of vision, or excitements, or awe, or wonder, our sense of clarity as to who Jesus is and what it is that he's come to do. This morning then, Mark has three things for us to notice. Each of them are striking in their own way and thrilling as well for us. Here's the first. It is that the kingdom of God is revealed as the word of Jesus is proclaimed. That's our first big point. And it's obvious because as we go through the text, you can see that the emphasis throughout is on the word of Jesus. And if we were to do the elementary school exercise and take an orange crayon and highlight every reference to the word, the whole page would turn orange. If you've got a Bible opened, Chapter 1, verse 7, John preached. Chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus came proclaiming. Chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus was teaching. Chapter 1, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. 
Chapter 1, verse 27, what is this new teaching? Chapter 1, verse 38, I've come to preach. Chapter 2, verse 1, he was preaching. Chapter 3, verse 14, I have been sent to preach. And then in our text, verse 18, the word. Verse 19, the word. Verse 20, the word. Verse 21, the word. Verse 22, the word. Verse 23, the word. In Islam, the caliphate is formed through military force and jihad. But this isn't a kingdom to be established by force. Nor is it a utopia that will be formed through socially progressive woke activism. Nor will it be a kingdom established as we lobby the Republican Party on Capitol Hill. The kingdom of Jesus will be formed and it will advance through the proclamation of the word of Jesus. God has only one son and he made him not a political activist, nor a social reformer, but a preacher. This is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.18, where God promised that he would raise up a second Moses, a prophet. This prophet would be the very mouthpiece of God. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Here is the prophet, God's long-awaited king. The hope of the ages is here, but what we need to see is that this is not just a proclamation to Israel, but a global proclamation, which takes us to the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. Because not only do we see the power of Jesus' word, but the scope of his proclamation. A sower goes out to sow. Verse 4, the seed falls along the path, the rocky ground. Verse 7, among the thorns. Verse 8, and on the good soil. Now, if we were at a business planning meeting for Aldi, Lidl or Giant or Macy's or Whole Foods. Before we decided to open an outlet, there would be massive research. We would research the market. We'd look at the socioeconomic demographics, the income profile and range, professional status. We'd do the metrics and would project profits. And only after we were done all of that would we take the market risk of opening Macy's here or Trader Joe's there. But what is striking in this parable of the sower is that this seed is thrown here and there and everywhere. And if we were to ask the grain baron of Wisconsin or rural Pennsylvania, he'd be rather shocked at the wastage he would tell us of the importance of sowing only on pre-prepared ground. He would tell us to take soil samples and then test them in the lab for the pH of the soil. We would have to do the computer calculations and then have nitrogen-saturated gullies. So, only there, 
But this scattering is liberal, it's random. The word of Jesus is cast far and wide. And this widespread broadcast of the word of Jesus is to be for us this morning a template for the strategy of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. For in Genesis 12, God promised that there would one day be a family that would become a nation from all over the world. And in Matthew 28, Jesus stands as the risen king with the command, which is the mandate, to go and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts 1, Jesus, before he returns to heaven, sets out his manifesto that the gospel is to be preached in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the distant coastlands, even to the ends of the earth. William Carey is known really as the father of modern missions. In 1792, he published an 87-paged manuscript entitled, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen in which the religious state of the indifferent nations of the world, the success of the forms undertaken, and the practicality of further undertaking are considered a snappy title. (laughs) But in it, he says this. Our Lord Jesus Christ, a little before his departure, commissioned his apostles to go and teach all nations, or as another evangelist expresses it, to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This commission is as extensive as possible and laid on them an obligation to disperse themselves into every corner of the inhabited globe and to preach to all inhabitants without exception. By 1800, the Baptist Missionary Society was formed. Carey was in Calcutta. He had translated the Bible into 40 different Indian languages and opened dozens of Christian schools. This is the spirit of mission. It's John Wesley. When ordered by the Bishop of Durham, Samuel Butler, to get out of his diocese, said, but my Lord, Bishop, the world is my parish. And here we are at Missions Month today. But all of this is an urgent correction to hyper-Calvinism, which sounds very painful, and it is. Because the hyper-Calvinist so believes that God will save the elect, that we need do and must do nothing. It's almost blasphemous or rude to suggest that we need to help God to save his people. No, no, we are Calvinists because we believe that God does choose, but we are to be those who preach the word of Jesus Christ. For God will save his people as the word of Jesus is proclaimed in a widespread, broad cast. And the point about this is, wherever you are this coming week will be a perfect place for mission. In that line in the store or on that plane or with that friend or family member, wherever we are is a great place to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's the first big point. It is that the kingdom of Jesus advances through a widespread broadcasting of the word of Jesus. 
All of which means, surely, we must now expect that as we go out this coming week and proclaim Christ globally, there will be a global harvest as the whole of the world pours on in. But that's not our reality, is it? And I was talking to a member of the congregation this week who was almost in tears as she spoke of how she had told someone the gospel and the response had been so harsh. I will not come to that church and I don't want to hear this message. In Europe, the conversion rate currently sits at 0.5%, which means that in Europe, now only two out of 1,000 European secularists are being converted. So, a widespread broadcast of the word of Jesus, but what can we expect? Here's our second point, and it's shocking. It is that this kingdom is concealed sovereignly from the hardened. In verse 2, Jesus begins teaching them many things in parables. Now, when I was at school in my religious education class, I was taught what I suspect you were taught, which is this, that the reason Jesus teaches in parables was to make difficult truth easy. It was to assist the poor agricultural, rural fishing folk of Jesus' day to understand difficult truth. The parable was really just an illustrative or a teaching device to make hard theological truth simple for simple people. That's wrong. Because in Psalm Psalm 78, uh, God says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will speak dark sayings of old. So the parable is a dark saying. In Psalm 49 verse 4, God says, I will speak in proverbs and riddles. So the parable isn't just an illustration, it's really a puzzle. It's obscure and it's a riddle like a brain teaser crossword or that picture we just saw. The parable is difficult to understand. It's it's cryptic or, or puzzling. The story is easy, but the connection to life is difficult to grasp. So here's the shocking theological truth. It is then that Jesus deliberately speaks in parables so as to deliberately speak in an obscure way so as to deliberately conceal the truth of the gospel from those who are hard of heart on the outside. Verse 11, for those on the outside, everything is to be in parables, lest indeed they may see, for they will see but not perceive, and hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. John Calvin puts it like this, Christ here intentionally speaks obscurely in order that his discourse might be a riddle to many and might only strike their ears with a confused and doubtful sound. It remains a fixed principle that the word of God is not obscure 
except so far as the world darkens it by its own blindness. So as the word of God is proclaimed in a widespread broadcast, a fault line always opens up between those on the inside who want to hear it and receive it and be saved and those on the outside who in hardness of heart resist it for they don't see, can't understand and can't be converted. And this fault line has already opened up in Mark chapter 3. The family's verdict of Jesus, he's mad. The original in the Greek, he's gone berserk. The religious establishment's verdict of Jesus, he's bad. But verse 11 is a quote from Isaiah 9, where Isaiah is passing judgment on a rebellious nation, for prophet after prophet has spoken the word of salvation. But generation after generation, the nation has rejected the prophets. And so in Jeremiah 5, verse 21, God in judgment says, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear. In Ezekiel 12, verse 2, Son of man, you dwell in a rebellious house who have eyes to see but don't see and have ears to hear but don't hear. Isaiah 42, verse 20, this nation sees many things but doesn't observe. They have ears, but they are not open. When I was at university, the biggest show-offs were the rowers. And in the bar, every Friday night, they would do their party trick. It became almost boring as they took a drawing pin and then stuck it in their hands, which were so thickened and hardened by the rowing at five o'clock in the morning every day. And there would be no tears or pain. And then they'd say to the girls, come on, stick a pin or a knife in my hand. I feel no pain. Because it was so calloused and thickened, they couldn't feel anything. And it's like that with the kingdom of God. There are so many, when they hear the word of God, their hearts are so thickened and calloused and hardened that when they hear the gospel proclaimed, the great news of God's love and mercy, his passionate desire to have them included in his kingdom, they can't hear or see for years of rebellion have hardened and calloused their hearts. This section then is sharpening our doctrine of sin, but it's also sharpening our doctrine of judgments. For as the word of God goes out, even right now, two things are happening in this building, in this sanctuary. Some of us will be coming closer to God in salvation as we long to receive God's word. But others of us will be hardening our hearts. And that's the judgment of God. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 4 and 5 and following to verse 7 to describe the different responses in judgments. Verse 4 is the casual, verse 5 the shallow, and then verse 7 the distracted. Some seed, says Jesus, falls along the path and the birds came and devoured them. 
the explanation, verse 15, when anyone hears the word but doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what has been sown in the hearts. The casual, the word is heard, but it's in through one ear and out through the other. The word of God, it's rather like a ping pong ball. It just hits the table and then bounces off. There is no germination, the judgment of God. Verse five, then come the shallow. Other seeds fall on rocky ground where they don't have much soil and immediately they spring up where the sun rises, but then they were scorched because they had no root. Verse 16 to 17, these are those who hear the word. They receive it immediately with joy, but they have no roots. And so when tribulation or persecution comes on account of the word, they immediately fall away. There's early promise, a passionate profession of faith. They join the inquirer's class. They get baptized. On the surface, a deep hunger and great promise. But the soil is limestone bedrock. So there's no root system. And rather like a firework on July the 4th, there's an incredible display. And then it all just fizzles out because there's been no calculation of cost. Because Jesus says that there will be two things that come to each one of us, tribulation and persecution. Tribulation and persecution will stress test every one of us. Tribulation, the cancer diagnosis or the bereavement or financial hardship or mental ill health or the divorce. Persecution, the attack that will come to you if you are in line with Jesus and his gospel. It's going to get worse, in my own view, in this culture. Tribulation and persecution, they are literally, in the Greek, scandalized. They fall down. It's Mr. Byens uh, from Pilgrim's Progress, I think, who says to Christian, I will walk with you to the celestial city as long as I can go in silver slippers and to the applause of the crowds. But of course, as soon as it gets hard, he runs back to the city of destruction. The casual, the shallow. And then come verse seven, the distracted. I think this might be the most sobering for us here this morning. Verse seven, seed, they fall among thorns. And then the thorns grow up and choke them. Verse 18, the explanation, the cares, the deceits, and the desires choke the word of God, and it is not fruitful. The problem is the anxiety of life, the work deadline, the kids' sporting program, the career advancement, the mortgage payment, the desire for a bigger and better house, health worries, home improvements, weekends up at the vacation house, the pension portfolio. None of these things are bad or wrong, but it's a short hop and a skip to the thorns that choke the word of Jesus in your life. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis pictures an apprentice devil being trained by the tutor, Screwtape. 
who is a cunning expert tactician. And the question is, how do you bring the patient away from God, his savior? And the senior tutor warns the student devil that you don't have to go for the spectacular sin, just the subtle deceits and the things of life that lure him away slowly. Listen to this. The senior devil says, you will say that these are small sins that I'm trying to encourage you to lead him into. And like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember that the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from God, the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. One preacher puts it like this, could this be then a warning to evangelicals who love good preaching? Often you see what is loved, he says, is just the intellectual stimulation so we can analyze the word, dissect the word, take notes on the word, discuss the word, but there is no real germination and no obvious harvest. Three out of four of these soils are the heart of heart, It is a warning to us. The kingdom of Jesus advances through the proclamation of his word. The kingdom of Jesus is sovereignly concealed from the hardens. Last, let's see that the kingdom of Jesus is sovereignly opened to the listening insider. Because there are two types of listening. I suppose there's the passive listening, classical music on in the backgrounds, maybe the radio station on in the car as you drive to New Jersey. Or maybe it's the voice of a child and you're not paying attention, or more likely the voice of the parent and the child isn't paying attention. Maybe it's the announcement, the safety announcement on the plane. I've heard it so many times. But there are things we pay attention to, aren't there? About a year ago, I was in a London museum And all of a sudden, as we were walking around, the voice came on saying, evacuate the building immediately. Move to your first exit and get out of the building as quickly as you can. I was with one of the children. It was a bomb alert. Uh, Maybe a jihadist attack was coming. You've never seen me move more quickly. I paid attention. Jesus' word is a word of salvation. In verse 31 of chapter 3, the earthly family are outside. And in verse 32, we see something of a template for church. 
a close-knit family now with Jesus at the center as they listen to his words, just like the picture of Israel in Leviticus 18. So we began with the optician, how are your eyes? But we end with the audiologist, how are your ears? Because to see the kingdom will mean we have to listen to the word of Jesus. How's your eyes? Do you see the kingdom? But actually the question is, how's your hearing? Do we need a hearing aid, spiritually speaking? Because in Hebrew, the word listen is much more than just mental activity or passive acceptance. It means to hear in order to obey. The Bible and faith is bomb under the building faith. We need to hear the word of Jesus, rather like I did in that museum. And that's what it means to be an evangelical. The word evangelical means to be people of the word, the evangel. And so the application isn't legalistic. It isn't, let's go off and read the Bible for four hours every single day before breakfast, though that would be a great thing to do. The application is to orientate now the whole of your life, mind, ambitions, focus, future, family, around this gospel and this king. We need to be like John Bunyan, of whom it was said, his veins and his blood, it was Bibline. Wherever you slashed his veins, scripture, the gospel would just flow out. For if the kingdom of Jesus advances through the word of Jesus, we need to be a listening people. The gospel needs to be right at the heart of all that we do as a church. It's not then that the word is preached on a Sunday and then we close our Bibles and go home. Rather, every part of our church life and family life need to be under the word of Jesus Christ. Our preaching ministry, our small groups ministry, the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the men's ministry, the women's ministry, and the music ministry need to be shaped by the word of Jesus. And we need to evaluate all of our groups. It's one of the things I'm going to be asking Pastor Steve and Pastor Michael to do as they work with me, as we evaluate all of our ministries, our small groups, our youth group, our men's ministry, our songs, did that sermon, did that group, did that song proclaim to me the word of Jesus? Did it tell me all about Christ? Did it deepen my awareness of sin, my need of grace? Did it take me, that sermon, that group, that song, to the cross? Did it tell me the story of redemption? Did it point me to his coming return and glory? This is how we will grow. Fathers, take a look at your household. Ask the question, is the word of Jesus shaping your family time? Teens, does the word of Jesus infiltrate your discussion with your friend? All of us, as a family, need to examine ourselves. And the motto of this church, all of the Bible, for all of life, surely fits precisely with Mark chapter 4. And how thrilling 
that we're on the verge of starting, as Jeff said, a new classical Christian school where the vision will be to sow this word far and wide, 500 children in our school by 2030. The word of Jesus, because the kingdom advances as the word is proclaimed, sovereignly concealed to the outsider, but sovereignly revealed to those who hear it and who long to accept it. Let's pray together as we sit. Father, our prayer is that you would make us a listening people who boldly proclaim this words, that your kingdom might advance in our own lives, in our neighborhoods and world. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.